Thanks, Reed. If you can have your Bibles open to Exodus 34 and 2 Corinthians, we'll refer to it um, uh, as we go. But let's pray that God will speak to us through this very difficult passage. Lord, we thank you that in your word is life. And Lord, we thank you that, um, but it is only in your word there is life. Lord, we know that all the words that I have prepared here, Lord, will mean nothing unless your spirit works in us as we listen to your word. So Lord, we pray that you send your spirit, write your laws in our hearts, and help us to be transformed by this message, that we may go out and be the message of life, be the message of righteousness um, that this world desperately needs. Speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a difficult passage. We're just starting this uh, new series through 2 Corinthians, and it's really about ministry. It's really about the ministries that we do. Um, But as we start, I want to ask you the question of thinking about what is the most glorious thing that you've ever seen in your life? Um, I like hiking, and so when I go up the top of the mountains and when I look around, you know, 360 degrees, the beauty of the nature, I think, wow, this is glorious. You may, for you, it may be something different. Um, you may have, have gone to uh, the Florence or something and have seen the statue of David, and you thought, oh, human body and its perfection, that's glorious. Or maybe it's music, a piece of music that you really enjoy. And as you listen to it, it's just perfection. And you want to be part of it because it was so glorious. You find that glorious. Well, in the Old Testament, the word glory, um, uh, kabod, is derived from a word that means to be heavy, to, to weigh something. Glory is something that is substantive. Glory is something that is weighty. It's not fluffy. It's not, um, it is real. And in the end, the Christian view, the Old Testament view of glory is that all the glories that you see, all the things that are real and glorious in this world are just a glimmer or just a slight reflection of God, the reality of God, the glory of God. And so when Moses cries out, and in Exodus chapter 33, 18, show me your glory. He's not asking for more clouds. He's not asking some representation of God's glory, but he's asking uh, to see God himself. He's saying, God, show me yourself. He wanted to see God. And on that day, well, this is the second time and this has happened, but when Moses saw God, And God gives him the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. When he receives it and he comes down, we see in our first reading, Old Testament reading, his face is radiant. It's glorious. The substance um, that that, uh, Moses' face um, uh, took on some of the characteristics of God himself. And Moses, who represented the Old Covenant, he sort of, uh, as a person, represents the Old Covenant. He became glorious. He became like God, and his face started to reflect God's glory. And if you can imagine being there at that mountain, as you see Moses coming down, his face is glowing like God's, we can see why they would be afraid. 
Exodus chapter 34 and 30. Aaron and all the Israelites are afraid to go near um, Moses because he's different. His face is like God's. But when we talk to... um, uh, so Moses had, had so Moses had gathered them, and then he talks to them, and then he then puts a veil over his face so that people wouldn't be so afraid of seeing him, being with him. And the point that I really want to make here is that even in the Old Testament, even as Moses' face reflected only God's glory, so people who weren't seeing God directly, people were seeing um, God's glory mediated through a person, And even then, they were afraid to go and stare at Moses' face. And so Moses has to veil his face so people can't look at his glory. And um, that that is, in, in a way, the glory of the old covenant. It is glorious, but it's mediated and it's veiled. People cannot directly see God himself, God's glory. Um, It's directly. But the point is that even then, the glory of the old covenant was glorious. It was glowing. It was radiant. But let's come back, actually, then, to what Paul says about this old covenant uh, in our text in 2 Corinthians. So if you turn to our 2 Corinthians um, passage, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, the, in that passage, the word glory is repeated again and again, isn't it? And the subject is really glory. But then he describes the Old Covenant in this way. He says that the Old Covenant brought death, verse 7. In verse 8, he tells us that the Old Covenant brought condemnation. And we see, um, you see, the Old Testament showed what God wanted from his people, because, and, and, and the law, because the law reflected God's character, it was still glorious, but it didn't give the people ability to obey God's law. It's like, um, I don't know if you have a sibling. If you have a perfect sibling, you think it would be nice to have a perfect sibling with you, but actually, when you have a perfect sibling ne- next to you, he, he or she becomes a constant reminder of your failure. <laughs> the old covenant is a bit like that. It is glorious, it is great, but actually when you have it, it condemns you. Because it tells you of God's standards, but not not the ability to keep it. And that condemnation is real, and it leads to death, because it convicts us as sinners. And Paul says also that the Old Covenant, in verse 8, is transitory, because it came with an expiration date. It wasn't going to last forever. It was going to uh, be in place for a time until the real thing came, until Jesus came. It was transitory. But notice what Paul says in this text, uh, verses 7 through 11, that even despite the fact that it brought condemnation, it brought death, despite the fact that it was transitory, it was still glorious. And Moses, who represented this old covenant, people couldn't even look at his face, the mediated glory, because it was so glorious. And what he's saying then is, how much more? How much more glorious is the new covenant, the ministry of Paul, ministry that you and I are involved in? How much more glorious is that glory now? that we're a part of. New Covenant, conversely, brings life. 
It's engraved not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human heart, as we heard last week. It doesn't come with an expiration date like the Old Covenant. It will last forever and ever. Not only that, it will not bring just condemnation, but it will bring righteousness, he says. It will bring God himself into our hearts in the ministry of the Spirit. He says, how much more glorious is that ministry? But then, could we pause and think about why Paul is saying this? As we have talked about it uh, last week a little, part of the reason is because he's being attacked by the false apostles, the super apostles. They were probably saying, there is no glory in Paul's ministry. Look at him. His message is so cheap that he doesn't even charge money. Because if it was so glorious, then you should be charging money. He's a, if he's a true apostle, he shouldn't be suffering like he does. And Paul's answer is that despite the fact that you can't see this glory, it, doesn't, it might not seem glorious, his ministry is even more glorious than the ministry of Moses, the founder of Judaism, the man who saw God face to face, whose face shone as he came down, as he ministered to his people. Paul is saying that his ministry is even more glorious than the ministry of Moses. Even if it doesn't, it might not seem like it. So here's the first encouragement that I want to give you from this text to all the people who are doing any form of ministry in this church or wherever. It may be that you're listening to the sermon uh, online because you're serving actually in um, uh, Sunday school. And maybe you just had a bad day. Kids weren't behaving. You had a hard time controlling them and you just thought, oh, what good am I doing? Point is that if you pointed to Jesus right there, if that is what's going on right there in those rooms, that ministry is even more glorious than the ministry of Moses himself because they're pointing to Jesus Christ. Maybe you lead Bible studies in your homes, and maybe you think, ah, nothing's happening here. The lives are not being changed, or people are not becoming Christians, or you're frustrated with what's going on. But if you are pointing to Jesus... You are doing ministry that brings life, that is permanent, ministry that brings righteousness into lives of the people. You are. That's what, that's the assurance of the scripture. Your ministry shines brighter than the ministry of Moses himself. If you're teaching your children not to be good people, not to be just good kids, grow up being good. But if you're pointing um, to Jesus, if you're teaching your kids, uh, your children about Jesus, the good news of Jesus, his, his life, his birth, life, and death, and the resurrection, you are doing the ministry of the Spirit. And Spirit will write God's laws in their hearts and give them life that lasts forever and ever. You are doing ministry that Moses only hoped that he could do. This is the case wherever you minister, whether that's at home, in your workplace, in your schools, in the church. If you're not teaching people to be good, that's the ministry really of the old covenant. But how God has made you good in Jesus Christ. If you're pointing to the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
And no matter how tedious that ministry is, no matter how, how, hard, uh, how hard of a time that you're having right now doing it, no matter, the, 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 it doesn't seem glorious right now, you are engaged in ministry that is radiant and glorious. And the Holy Spirit is at work. Be assured that that is the case. That's what Paul is saying here. How much more glorious is this ministry than the ministry of the Old Covenant. And then Paul goes on to explain how exactly, why this is the case in the second half of our passage. And he talks about this veil. Now, just go back to the veil and removing it. Um, to the word that dominates uh, the next half of our reading, the veil seems to function in two different ways in this text. In verse 13, Paul says that uh, Paul uh, Moses put a veil over his face that people couldn't see his face clearly. And we can talk about why this was done. There are many, many theories on it. Uh, but the point is that people couldn't look at uh, Moses' face clearly. People couldn't, gra- people couldn't really take in the glory of God that's even reflected in Moses. In the end, it was veiled. But that veil, he goes on to say, represents another thing in chapter 3 and verse 14. He goes on to say that the veil then represents the dullness of our hearts and how our hearts and our minds do not have the ability to grasp God himself. We can't look at God. We can't understand God. We're not getting the fullness of God because our hearts are dull, because our minds have become dull. That's the veil that he talks about in verses 14 and 15. And so the Jews, even now, he says, even now as the Old Covenant is read, the Jews have this veil over their hearts. But you don't have to be a Jew to understand this veil, that there is this veil. Yesterday in Christianity Explored, somebody asked me, how do, you, how do we know that God exists? How do we know that God exists? And I explained as best as I could, really, I mean, look at the splendor of the creation, the complexities of a human body in your DNA, or what's going on in a leaf. Or, I mean, trees make sugar out of really nothing, out of thin air. That's amazing. Maybe you are seeing God's image in, the, in, in people, in the goodness of the people. But you see, all that glory that points to God is really a pale reflection. It's a veiled reflection of God himself. We're not getting fullness of God himself through the creation. We're not getting the fullness of God through the old covenant. We see God partially. Moses' face is veiled. People in this world see vague hints of God's glory. But you see, Paul says this doesn't have to be a permanent condition. What reveals God in his fullness, in his full splendor, he says, is in Jesus Christ. When you see Jesus, you see God's glory tabernacled in his flesh. We see, when we see God, when we see Jesus, we see God. This is why he says in verse 14, only in Christ the veil is taken away. When we see Jesus, we see God himself. When anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, he says. 
You know, when you have come to know Jesus, it's like Moses seeing God face to face. Face to face. If you know Jesus, you are seeing God face to face. But not only that. The veil is taken away. But not only that. There's one more. God sends his spirit into your heart. That's the promise that he makes. Um, That's what he says in verse 17. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with the unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What he promises is the freedom to see God clearly, unveiled. What he promises is that God himself will live in our hearts and show us who God is, what God desires from each, each one of us, that we'll be able to behold him in our hearts through the Spirit. And do you know what happens to people who see God face to face? Do you see what happened to Moses? Moses became like God. And that's what Paul says in verse 18. As we contemplate the Lord in our hearts, we become like God. We become like, we become like God that we will increase in glory, he says. And you see, This is what really is all about. The ministry of the new covenant reveals God himself in Jesus Christ. And not just that, that the Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts, to reveal God so we can see face, God face to face. I've said that when we see, um, when we look at glorious things in music, in art, in, in nature, you know, poets have talked about how, you know, it's not just, uh, they're amazed by it. Um, they, um, when, when we see the greatest glories of the nature, we somehow want to be a part of it. That sense of unity comes, right? We come and we come and we go, how glorious is this? We want to be a part of it. And poets have waxed on about this for many, many um, centuries and years. Um, And that's just a dream, really. But in the ministry of the New Covenant, what the New Covenant says, that you can be a part of that glory. You can be part of that glory because God himself will come. And, and in your heart, change you in ever-increasing glory so you can be part of that glory. That we can increase in his likeness. And that's no small thing. That the glory um, in the image of Christ, image of God that is lost in us, is being restored. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it. And I think the quote will come up in his famous sermon, Weight of Glory. He says, he writes, It is a serious thing to live in society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. What he's saying is, because God is changing you, 
Because you are increasing in Christ's likeness, and that is glory, that's the substance of God himself in you, if we truly, each one of us, truly saw who you are, truly, what is going on, then we would be tempted to worship each other. Because each one of us will bear that image of God like no other thing in this world. And so he writes, he continues, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest, holiest object presented to to your senses. If he is a Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him, also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, God himself is truly hidden. Each one of us has Christ in us. We are the closest thing to God because God has sent His Spirit and is restoring His glory in each one of us. In each one of us is God truly hidden as we are hidden in Christ. It's the ministry of the Spirit to unveil people's hearts, to remove the, the heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh write God's laws in our hearts. This is about people's basic orientation being changed from selfishness to a life that says there's more than myself. This is ministry um, that uh, makes impatient people patient. This is a ministry that allows people who are unforgiving to love their enemies this is a ministry um, that, that says uh, that allows people who have been maybe stingy to be generous. These changes are God's image that are being restored in us. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. And we are transformed into ever-increasing glory through the ministry of the Spirit. The Old Testament, Old Covenant, told you what God wanted but it didn't have the power to allow you to keep those laws. But through Christ, through His Spirit, God sends His Spirit and we become like Him because of the ministry of the Spirit. The point of all this really is that um, Paul is saying this is why he can be bold in his ministry. As he writes in verse 17, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And when are you bold in your ministry? Um, for me, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, I'm probably most bold in my ministry when I feel that I am most well prepared. But that's not what Paul, why Paul is bold. The reason why Paul can be bold, I think, this might be a bad example, but I couldn't think of a better one, I'm sorry. I think the same reason, the same reason why I think North Korea is so bold in, in, in the face of all that is going, the international pressures. North Korea is bold because, um, at least I think it, uh, um, because it has nuclear power. <laughs> Because it's sitting on something that is truly powerful. 
so they can threaten and they can speak boldly to the international community because it ha- is sitting on something truly powerful. That's my, that might be not the best example, but what Paul is saying is something slightly similar That in that he can be bold despite the fact that it might not seem glorious, it might not seem like it's much, he's much, that he has truly ministry that is more powerful than anyone could have imagined. He has ministry that is even more glorious than the ministry of Moses. He has ministry of the Holy Spirit that transforms the lives of the people. And as I was reflecting on this, on Wednesday evening, I thought, ah, man, I need to pray more. (laughs) This ministry is not about me. If you are involved in any sort of ministry, you got to pray because this is more than what you could do. What you each want in your best preparedness, best arguments, uh, best cleverness could do. This is the ministry that transforms people's lives, where the ministry where the spirit is at work. And then the second thought that I had as I was uh, praying and going, God, transform the lives of the people in Shatin Church. Lord, transform this church. As I was praying, I was also overwhelmed with the sense of gratitude that he would involve me. He would involve you. He would involve the church in transforming people in ever-increasing glory into his likeness that the real substance of things is happening in each one of us, that he would involve us. Isn't that an amazing thing? Isn't that the greatest privilege that you and I could have? Let's go out. Let's go out and be involved in this ministry. Be involved. Go out and pray with people in your workplace, in your family, wherever you are. Be part of this ministry. Let's pray.